0: Uh, my name's Silas, Interim Lead Pastor, and um, I especially wanted to extend a warm welcome to Dr. Ted Lewis. Thank you for joining us. Uh, for those who don't know, we had a training churchwide in this space. There's been also several calls and meeting spaces before, but um, we are thrilled and uh, we welcome you. Uh, the, the training has been around conversations um, uh, of restorative justice and practice in our community. And he's been leading out, along with Alicia, along with uh, our very own Karen Foxley and Taylor Greer, a uh, process of how we might as a church step into the work of restorative justice and what that could look like in its embodiment within Bethany. So we are, we're grateful that you're here. Thank you for joining us. Um, and along with all the others that are joining us um, I'm grateful for you to be here in this space. It is a, um, it's a pause in our week to reflect on who God is, but also it's a pause for us to recognize that God meets us in this intentionality in our schedules that we build out. So it's not a small thing that we are gathered today. I do believe God is going to meet us and will meet us in our gathering If you would, join me for prayer as we reflect on the scriptures themselves. God, again, we welcome that this is a time of gratitude. That we are grateful for this day, for this space to worship in, for this ability to pause and reflect on who you are. We pray that you would speak to our hearts today. That this spoken word would be faithful to your written word. That it would lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Make us more like you, and may we, re- we reflect you well. We play, pray this with Christ by the Spirit, and everyone said, amen. In the 1900s, as um, immigrants from all over the world were coming to the United States, one of the procedures that many people had to undergo upon entering the country was a medical check or a medical screening. Right? So Ellis Island, you do your check, you have a couple things to do, hopefully you're able to make it in, right? Since folks were typically traveling long distances in less than sanitary conditions, at least by our standards today, these medical checks were meant to help ensure that folks conform to a certain level of health before they were really able to be a part of the community, to be a part of the country. As a part of this process, one of the inspections that was done was looking for evidence of trachoma. And so trachoma is considered to be one of the oldest infectious diseases known to humanity. There's traces of it going back thousands of years. One of the oldest ones. It's an eye disease, and today we can treat it with one dose of antibiotics. Just one dose, it's gone. Not an issue. Back then, a little bit of a different story. For anyone who may have had it in the 1900s, three out of four patients would end up being permanently blind. So it was a serious thing. It's also highly contagious, eye disease. And so as people would walk up for their screenings, here's how the doctors would check out things. They would, you know, tilt your head back as you're walking through kind of the gate, and then they'd get something called a button hook, and they'd get under the eyelid and just take a look see if there's any inflammation, see if there's anything going on. If there was, you know, you might be quarantined, and you might have to uh, take some time. Or, on the worst case, you might be sent back. But For most of the case, most cases, what typically happened was they would take a look. If you're all, pretty much in the clear, uh, you'd make it through on the physical check. And so you, they'd do this, right? You'd check each other's eyes as you come through. And almost everyone who entered Ellis Island in the early 1900s would have this happen. Now, if you were an inspector and you'd forgotten your button hook that day, no problem, you use the next best thing, your fingers. So you'd use your fingers to do that. Most of the time, when you check the island and you'd be done, you'd go on to the next piece of the immigration journey. You're good to go. But catch this here's how things start to take a turn through the early 1900s. Because you know what would happen after each exam took place? The next person would come up and you'd do it again. Same doctor, new patient, same tool to check for this highly infectious disease without pausing to clean the, the tool or wash your hands in the process. You don't have to be a doctor to see what starts happening as this journey continues. Day after day, patients would catch trachoma as a result of the interaction with the doctors, because you are using the same method from one to the other. Day after day, this disease that was thought to have been diminishing because of the security measures that were at place, ended up growing within American society. They had a saying, if you were in the immigration line, beware of the man with the button hook. Beware of the man with the buttonhook. Day by day, patient after patient, this process was meant to protect communities. But it missed the mark. It actually became a structure of brokenness rather than a structure of wholeness. In an effort to be more efficient, to get people through the lines, right? It's an effort to grow quickly, to reach masses who just wanted to have a place to land. This practice, meant to bring healing and renewed sight, ended up spreading and amplifying disorder said another way, rather than finding blind spots and restoring our ability to see. The doctors, the inspectors, were complicit in impairing vision and spreading disease. Guess what, friends? When it comes to the issues of race and confronting racism in our country, large segments of the church we've done something similar. Rather than finding blind spots and restoring our ability to see, many expressions of Christianity in America have been complicit in impairing vision, perhaps in spreading sickness. So this sermon and our next series is aimed at confronting and reversing this a little bit. Not that this is going to be the magic bullet to solve all the world's problems, but it is something for us to engage in, to have a theological lens and l- language to articulate how we as people of faith might engage these serious issues, and we're going to have time to do that, but to begin with, everyone take a breath, <sighs> okay? Strong start. Visceral story speaks also to the nature uh, and the weight that this kind of discussion, this kind of topic, can raise up in us. So I want us to pause and breathe. I'm going to go over some commitments that we have and that I want us to be aware of as we go through this next series. You might already be thinking, okay, racism's bad. Got it. Like, it, there's not a lot to do. There's not a lot of uh, gray area for most people. Like, we could poll 10 people on the street, and most people would probably say racism is bad, right? Most, dare I say all, would affirm that this is truth. Racism is wrong. Racism's evil. You don't have to be a Christian to affirm this, right? But for Christians, why do we say it's wrong? Right this word racism it's not in the bible. It's not there. There's no 10 commandment that says thou shalt not be racist. Jesus never explicitly mentions the word. So if Christians and non-Christians alike would affirm that racism is wrong, what do we as a church bring to the conversation that others might not bring themselves? What is unique about our stance to say racism's wrong? Why do we do this? Over the next five weeks, this is one of the questions we're going to explore together. Why do this? Another way of saying this is, what do Christians bring to conversations around race that differ from other conversations that are happening all around us? If you're in your school, if you're at work, if you're just existing in the Pacific Northwest, this conversation is happening around us. Especially in the last few years, like you can't live in the space we live in without being confronted about conversations that talk about race, racism, how you engage with it, what do we do? Again, perhaps because of this, you have already thought to yourself in the last couple minutes, why? I'm tired. Why are we talking about this? Why do we celebrate Cultural Heritage months? Can't I just have a space in my life that is free from having to think of this? It's happening all around me. I come to church for Jesus, not for politics. I'm not feeling this. Maybe that's been going through your head. And here's the thing I empathize with that feeling. I empathize with those questions. I hear you, friend. Because talking about this is hard, it's also personal, it's exposing, it can be polarizing. In our climate especially, it feels tiring, it's vulnerable, but it's also necessary. It's necessary, not because as a church we're trying to be led by peer pressure or cultural peer pressure, but rather it's necessary because as the broader culture around us talks about race, racism, sometimes the conversations Aim to confront racism in a way that forms us perhaps away from the ethics of God. And this is an issue. And the time is now to address it. So as we do, here are some commitments that we will share. Some commitments we will share. Because I recognize that coming into this space it can be hard. We will first root our conversations in the triune life of God, revealed in Christ by the power of the Spirit. There are a variety of ways to talk about race, reconciliation, justice, restoration. As we do this series, we recognize that we are engaging in a series on God's justice broadly, and specifically we're focusing on how that relates to race. That's not saying that This is the totality of God's justice. God's justice intersects across different ways that we engage the world. We could do a series on economic disparity. We could do a variety of ways to talk about justice. But in this case, we're talking about justice broadly and race specifically in its engagement and interaction, intersection with justice. As we do this, we'll discover that the basis of our existence is God. This is ultimately one of Christianity's theological contributions to the discussion about justice. Because all creation, but even more specifically all humans, are created in the image of God to participate in Explicit racism, or to hold implicit racist attitudes, is an insult. Not just to the people who are affected, but to the God who has created us all. We root it there. Put another way, this is the cause of sin. A marring of the image of God that's present in everyone around us. In creation around us. As we explore together, we will find our foundation in God and not in other ideologies, cultural movements. We'll be committed to doing this to root our conversation in the life and being of God. There may be overlaps with other conversations. We'll always come back to this shared foundation, God. This is a conversation rooted in the being of God. Our second commitment, we will honor each other's lived experiences and engage this series with a posture of openness. We will engage each other as subjects who bear God's image, not as objects in a hypothetical debate. I will see personhood. You will not become objects in a debate towards anything. We're committing to experience and honor the lived experience that people share, that we share. We all have a story. The goal of the series isn't to call you out. It is meant to call you up. Not call you out. It's meant to call us all up in a way that empowers and equips our community to better reflect the character of God amidst racism. Big distinction. We will honor our stories. Number three, we will not use this series to dictate or prescribe your personal choice. And this is a tough one. Perhaps for some of y'all, I can't vote. I'm Canadian. So in your election cycle, right, I can't, I can't vote in this way. This will not be used to dictate you and press you towards a certain political persuasion. The goal here is not to tell you what to do. That's not the goal here. We're not trying to tell you what to think or what to do. Rather, we will offer ourselves in this time to discern the opportunities of God's refining word for us personally and for us communally. And the work then gets done by y'all in y'all's life. Right? We will commit to this not prescription, but rather invitation into the life of a living, breathing God who overlaps and intersects with all the aspects that we hold in life. This we commit to. a last thing that we will do in this series, we will recognize that sometimes the truth hurts, and in our interactions with that hurt, we will commit to not harming each other. So this is a key distinction, an absolutely crucial distinction that we need to make. There's a difference between hurt and harm. If you get surgery, that hurts. It is not easy. If you've had surgery, it's painful. It hurts. But it's towards wholeness. It's pressed towards that harm. The intent is already built in from the experience. If I'm aiming to harm you, I have the hurt, but I also have the intent to do evil to you, to mar you, to damage. When we talk about real experiences, lived ones, our goal is not to harm to have the intent built in right from the get-go that this is going to tear you down. What we do recognize is sometimes sharing real truth will hurt. But like a surgeon or like surgery, an even more visceral image, cauterizing a wound, that really hurts. But it cleans it. It sanctifies it. It makes it whole. It sets it on a trajectory towards that. We will commit to engaging truth that hurts while also avoiding harm. And this will be in our conversations with each other and from what is said from the stage. These are commitments I share with you because, again, as we go into a series like this, everyone, no matter where you are, everyone in the room, your defense systems are on full alert, right? Like, it is tense. At least, that's what it looks like from here. So... (laughs) We're in this space together, right? A commitment to root ourselves in God. A commitment to honor each other's lived experience. A commitment to not dictate and prescribe action. And a commitment to recognize that this isn't going to be easy, but we are moving and we're being moved by God towards wholeness. So with all of that introduction— All of the caveats in place. Let us read God's word. And you hear me say this almost every week. As we read this text, let's allow the text to read us, right? We read these passages to encounter the living God who lives and moves and encounters us, who wraps our lives into God's life. Let us read this text and allow the text to read us. If you would, Revelation Uh, Revelation 7, starting at verse 9, and we'll go through the end, verse 17. And we're reading from um, from the NIV today. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands are crying out and crying out with a loud voice, "'Salvation belongs to our God "'who sits on the throne and the Lamb. "'And all the angels standing around the throne "'and around the elders and the four living creatures, "'and they fell on their faces before the throne "'and worshiped God, saying, "'Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving "'and honor and power and might "'be to our God forever and ever. "'Amen.'" Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. This passage, uh, it sits in a book called Revelation, which is this description within a certain cultural genre that's trying to make sense of where the writer is, where the times are around him. He's trying to describe what God is doing and what God might do as he's living through different stages and different placement uh, within society. Justo Gonzalez, he is um, a Cuban-American theologian coming from the Methodist tradition. He talks about how this passage here, um, we can read it in a variety of ways. So perhaps whenever you have heard a sermon or engaged the text of Revelation, uh, what happens is, you think about, like, that's future stuff. That's stuff that happens way out there. Uh, it's stuff that's going to engage us uh, in the time to come. Maybe you have images of, like, um, left behind or something like that, right? You, you'll have different ways of talking about what's going on in this book. Because there's some strangeness woven in. Husto he makes this a little bit more concrete. Because for him he interprets the book with his lived reality in mind. So he talks about how in this time, the multicultural perspective of Revelation is connected to what it looks like to be someone who is of mixed cultural heritage in our time. Here's how he does that. He says, This passage here in verse 9, it talks about there's people from every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, all tongues. It underscores the multi-ethnic character of the people of God. Revelation is supposed to give us a snapshot of what is to come. A snapshot of what is to come. So if this is true, so says, well, you know, if that's going to be a snapshot of the people of God in the future— Can't that describe the people of God now? Right? In my lived reality now? Makes sense. He goes on to unpack how John, the author of this book, he may have very well been a refugee himself in Asia Minor from Palestine following the trauma of the Roman Jewish War. Oh, with this information, perhaps that changes the way this book is reading a little bit. For Gonzalez, John's dual identity as a Jew writing to a Greek-speaking audience—so not his first language—but you know, writing in, to a Greek-speaking audience in Asia Minor in a land and a language that isn't primary for either one of those identities. Right? It's not. Roman it's not in that space it places him in a situation similar to people with hybrid identity today. In his theology, he talks about this as mestizo mestizo it's it's a home in two places and also not having a home in either. Right? It's like I'm not quite all the way. Fitting in in this space i 'm not quite fitting in all the way in this space there 's just i can I can flex where I go, but i don 't fully fit in in either for my journey as a human being, I uh, have grown up north of Toronto in more rural spaces, so kind of a my dad he moved us we lived maybe an hour, 45 minutes out of the downtown city part of Toronto. We kind of lived in the woods, in the sticks, and surrounded by farmland. And so um, we had lots of hobby animals. We weren't really strategic. He might, my dad might articulate a kind of strategy that looked like, in reality, just whatever animal he felt like farming or raising for that time is what we had. So we had goats, we had chickens, we had pheasants. We're spread out all over the place, and it would kind of be in seasonal things. But growing up in this environment, um, you know, I could look around my school, and there would be maybe one other person who looks like me. My twin brother, right? (laughs) We We don't look, like, exactly the same, but we're close enough, I mean... We would be in the same school spaces together, and most of our environment around us would be predominantly white spaces. And then also, when we would go for Chinese school to downtown every Saturday uh, to learn, to explore, to um, to learn the language, to eat dim sum, to walk through the markets—all the things that you do—you know—we were welcome to those spaces, but because we were so separated out from the language and the day-to-day interaction, catching the culture rather than just being taught the culture, you know, we, we didn't really fit in this space either. My Cantonese is quite poor. Uh, I can hear, but my speaking is not ideal. I'm fluent in two languages. I'm fluent in French, but you wouldn't know that if I, told, if I didn't tell you. You might assume Mandarin or Cantonese. And here's the thing. In either space, there's ways that we recognize, I fit here. There's also ways I recognize this space isn't necessarily uh, the most welcoming space. How do I exist in these two spaces together, these dual identities? In some ways, we all carry bits of this mestizo. But when it comes to race, carrying this theology affects some of us more than others. W- with this text, it gives us a snapshot of what can be. It gives us a snapshot of what heaven will look like. Have you ever thought about when you're reading the Bible, what, what language is going to be said when these words that we read in scripture, people saying salvation belongs to the Lord, holy, like when you're praising God in the heavens, what language is going to be heard? If you think English, I mean, the original text is Greek. So unless we learn Greek, maybe, I mean, maybe that's what we should say. But it's right to say what we read is going to be said it's also right to recognize if I'm reading the Bible in French, I can assume that language is going to be said too. Have we thought about the ways that our visions of heaven, our visions and answers to what heaven looks like, could perhaps focus on what the space looks like, streets of gold, all these things, without ever placing ourselves in the text to say, what accents am I hearing around me? All nations, all people, present in one space, worshiping God, sounds like heaven to me. I can remember a time at a previous church where I, I, it was probably my first year of pastoring, so I wouldn't advise necessarily doing this, but I I was pushing things a little bit. And in the Pentecostal tradition, Pentecost Sunday is like the Super Bowl Sunday, right? Like other traditions, you celebrate Christmas hard. Pentecostals, we go hard on Pentecost Sunday. That's That's our time. And so we read the text together. And I had prearranged with people. There were people who who read different languages. So we had someone in Romanian, someone in Ghanaian, someone in in English, in French, in Korean. Just in the middle of the service, when it came to reading Scripture, I get up there and I start reading. And then I instructed them, like, it's going to be weird. Stand up and just read it out loud. And as you do it, you're like... We read the whole chapter. So again, I would advise, that's like a long time of reading. (laughs) It felt awkward for every person in the room. But what it also did was, we took a pause after and I said, hey, so for those of you who like know broken Spanish, could you pick out like words that are coming from this side of the room? And for you who know Romanian, like you're picking out the English from here, this word over here, this over here. Over the series, we're going to engage the story of Acts 2, hearing God's message expressed through the voicing of every nation, every language, every tongue. But I bring that story up for us to recognize, like, even if we expect God's voice to come from different voices around, it can still feel weird. Like, I had prescribe that whole thing. I was thinking, oh, this is going to be great for our community. It was so awkward, so strange. And I knew it was coming. So for those who didn't know, even more, right? Like you could feel the dissonance. It took us a long time to gather back after that, um, that reading of the chapter. But it was also an experience to say, as we engage God together, we always want to be recognizing that God speaks through the personhood, the language, the engagement of others around us. And so this story that, that Huso is talking about, the way of reading this book, invites us not to look at the snapshot that's given to us in this, um, as an object out there. But instead, it's helping us recognize This is a lived reality that we can participate in now. This vision that's parsed out, it is what will happen, but it's also an invitation to what we can make happen, to what God is inviting us into as we look at the telos, look at the end. That word telos is an important word for us as Christians. We, we began by asking, what do Christians bring to this conversation about race that, you know, is unique in its space? What do we do? Why, why are we in the space? Couldn't we have this conversation at the library or the legion or uh, a middle school or something? Those conversations do happen in those spaces. But we're in a church with a commitment around theology around the theology that points to a God and that God being revealed to us in the expression of Father, Son, and Spirit, that God is innately a relationship, three in one. You could even say a divine relationship in that way. And so in that recognition, we recognize that to participate in the life of God is to participate in relationship and how I hold relationship with others. That makes all the difference. Because now it's no longer about what I do to one who's with me. It's now connecting me to the very life of God and how I interact with others. As we engage this conversation from this end, We recognize this snapshot gives us a vision of what faithful living can look like. What faithful living will look like. I'd mentioned that the word racism isn't in the Bible, but God challenges God's challenge against formation into uh, into racism. Uh, that does not lead to flourishing of all is present all throughout the scriptures. It's all throughout the pages. Throughout this series, we're going to look at how the scriptures continually press us to reimagine our own formation in light of Christ's life and work. So here are some ways that this looks. If you've ever thought of um, the Exodus story, and we know that, you know, Israel's leaving Egypt. They're leaving the land where they've been oppressed. They're leaving a moment of slavery, a season of slavery. 400 years, they're leaving that. And as they're journeying, Pharaoh says, or uh, Moses says, when Pharaoh, or the text says, sorry, in Exodus 13, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistines' country, though it was shorter. For God said, if they face war, this is Israel, who is just leaving after having been slaves for 400 years. He says, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Verse 18, so God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. And now catch the end of this verse. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. What do we make of this? God says, I'm going to take them through the long way so that they don't encounter war. They don't encounter battle. Otherwise, they might turn back and go to Egypt. Then the text says he's leading them. He led them around the desert toward the Red Sea. But the verse ends by saying, did he not tell Israel that they armed themselves for war? They armed themselves for battle. What do we make of this? It is odd and rare that we get God's motivation and intent behind action told to us in the text, that he's leading them away so they don't encounter war. And yet, the instinct of formation, after having been on the bottom of the ladder for 400 years, that does something to you formationally. Because as soon as you now have power and freedom, what do you want to do? I want to mimic the world that I was just in. But this time, I'm not going to be at the bottom. I'm going to be at the top. My formation wants me to mimic that, to embody that. This is the challenge that we face when we talk about formation as a people. For clarity, they've been enslaved for 400 years. That's older than America. Do you think that our formation as people in this country is not also just as strong? When we talk about formation, formation doesn't disappear when we encounter the liberating presence of God. Because God, in God's encounter with us, doesn't take away our agency. It doesn't remove our history. Instead, it transfigures that to make it pleasing and holy, life-giving, flourishing. It does that. It transfigures. It doesn't erase. It doesn't disappear. And so when we talk about the kind of formation that makes this series necessary, there's a couple technical terms we want to look at. The first one is whiteness. And this is, again, pulse check, right? This is, this is dicey water. Whiteness is defined as a structure, a power structure, that privileges white pigmentation as being inherently better or more valuable than people with different pigmentation. Now... Here is a huge distinction. When we talk about whiteness, we're not talking about white pigmentation. We're talking about the structure that values that above other pigmentation. Huge distinction. If you look at your skin, do it. Take a look, right? Check yourself. Some of you categorically might fit into that space pigmentation-wise. But what we're talking about is when your pigmentation is brought into an understanding of the world that says, because I have this pigmentation, I deserve or I am receiving things above people of other pigmentation. That is the distinction. So we're talking about the power structure. Daniel Hill, when he came a couple years ago, he talked about the lie of or the myth of, um, of racial difference. The lie of racial difference. That's the thing that we're trying to cut into. And this is where the conversation gets hard because we have to be really tightly defined. Right? We're not talking about pigmentation. We're talking about the power structure, the vision that says this is better than that because it has the pigmentation. And from the moment we're born, we're being formed by the norming powers around us. No one is exempt, by the way. I need to share this story. It was going into my junior year of high school. I had done a missions trip and um, I also played a lot of soccer. So I was outdoor all the time. Got really dark, really, really dark. First day of school comes, I get my school picture, and it's the time when you have the proofs, right? And so I bring the proof home, give it to my parents, and they're gonna order some pictures. You know, they love framing our picture, put it on the wall. And my dad says, Oh, you gotta get retakes. I'm like, Okay, why? You look too dark. You look Filipino. I am a Chinese-Canadian man. He is a Chinese-Canadian man. But whiteness is at play in that instinct. Are we catching this? So it's not the pigmentation you carry. It's the way you engage all pigmentation in the world. That is what we're talking about. And this is the difficulty, but this is also the insidiousness that needs to be rooted out. Right. This is how nuanced it gets. Because that's an interaction with my dad, who I believe is one of the most loving men in the world. I love it. I love him. This is like so real. And yet in his formation, there's a moment where he can say, oh, we need to get retakes. It's something as easy as that. This is where we need to get to. To say, God, take that interaction and sanctify it. You can't redo the past. You can live into a better future. God, make this future more Christ-like. Make us more Christ-like. Make our community engage other and difference and all the conversations that are happening around race, let's engage that by focusing on Christ. We're going to end with communion today. We are going to center our service on the instance and being and existence of God. The one who is broken for us, the one whose blood is shed for us. This is the water we're swimming in. And part of our work as Christians is to push back on the instincts that have formed us. And so, yes, the word racism does not appear in the Bible. But that does not mean that the Bible doesn't teach us about racism. Racial relations are part of how we treat others among us. And how we treat others among us, the Bible says a lot about that. And so as we journey in this series, this is the first sermon of five. And it's intentional that next week we are going to have our very own Karen Foxley preach for us. I'm excited about that because in the way that she embodies the world, it's different than me. Experience is different. Embodiment's different. But it's intentional that in that difference, we need to be able to hear how God is at work sanctifying her imagination making that imagination reflect God in truer and fuller ways. We're going to have our senior lead pastor Scott Sons come and join us for that as well. We're going to have Lydia Choi from Northeast join us or from North uh, join us as well. I'm also going to preach one more in that space. You're going to hear from a variety of voices in this sermon series because we recognize that as we talk about personhood, embodiment, it is important for us to engage this conversation to press back on the lies of formation that are around us. And so this snapshot that we're given in this text, a snapshot of what heaven can look like, a snapshot of what relationship looks like when we have overcome our formation into a power structure that has given us bad vision, that has infected our eyeballs. Even though we thought we might be doing the right thing, we've missed it. That's what we're doing over the next five weeks. I'm excited to journey with us through this series I recognize it will bring up things for you. If you would like to connect after, during the week, uh, we want to be able to resource you as a team, as a team, to have conversation with you, wrestling with identity, with personhood. As we do that, let me close this time in prayer. Andrew, bring up the band. Let's, um, Let's get into some praise here. In the Catholic tradition, this psalm, this passage, is the primary passage for the funeral liturgy when a child passes. This exact passage. And it's used because of the way that it is in Catholic tradition understood to be an invitation that is open, that recognizes the worth and dignity of all humanity that levels the playing field at the foot of the cross that says we will worship God when all things end. When I meet my maker, we will worship God. And so we reflect on the way that this gives us a snapshot of the vision to come. Over the series, we will learn how to impart that vision and infuse it into our life, overcoming some of the formation that we will have had, some ways that we might not even recognize. Like, it is hard to pick out that moment with my father. I don't like doing it. But it's also leading us through the pain, through the hurt, towards truthfulness. No one is exempt. We recognize this. At the same time, we will seek the Lord to be guided and made into people who reflect God well in new ways. So let me pray over us as we enter this time. And if you have kids, we will, um, and you need to go get them, go grab them because we will join back for uh, communion in this space. God, we're grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for this time to gather, for this time to pause, to breathe in your spirit. As you hovered over the chaos and depths of the deep, you brought goodness into being through your word. Through the words that we hear over the next week, may we, Reflect your goodness well. May you be making us into new creation. Would you help us to become people of flourishing for our community? Not just for ourselves, but as people who reflect on how you are speaking to us and through us. May our witness, may our witness be centered on you, Jesus Christ. May you expose things in us that are not pleasing to you. Would you give us grace to fail forward, to try and to encounter your grace when we do mess things up? Because we will. You are near to us. Mm. As we look at the bodies and the people coming into the room, may we leave a space for them that forms the world into your reflection of Revelation 7, a snapshot of your goodness, a snapshot of your wholeness. God, we need your help. Spirit, empower us to do this well. And so we pray this with Christ, by the power of the Spirit. And everyone said, amen.